I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. In this episode, I talk with Kara Meredith, teacher, former nonprofit leader, wife, mother to two little boys living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and author of the newly released The Color of Life, A Journey Toward Love and Racial Justice. Kara is a white woman married to a black man, and her story and her journey uh, to discover some of her own um, racism, even as she fell in love with this African-American man, is beautiful, and we had a written conversation. I thought that to precede our conversation, I would lead you to the story of two women, also a white woman and a black woman, whose story um, is significant in the Civil War era. And again, it's a lost story that I never knew about. Elizabeth Van Lu is a wealthy woman living on a plantation in Richmond, Virginia. She was educated in Philadelphia and got involved in the suffragist and abolitionist movement as a Quaker, so that when she returned home to Richmond, uh, and right as right around the time that Virginia seceded from the Union, she was pro-Union and anti-slavery, and so she got involved um, helping to free prisoners and to do various spy-like things. And the cool thing is that she paired up with a formerly freed slave, Mary Elizabeth Bowser, and the two of them became Union spies. So get this, Elizabeth helped uh, Mary get employed in the Confederate White House. And as a maid, Mary was ignored. And she served meals and overheard conversations and was able to read because she too was educated. So she read documents that she found in the household. uh, And no one assumed any of this, right? She was an invisible woman. And so she passed along the information to other slaves, and it got back to Elizabeth. And together, they were able to get it to Union agents, so that when General Grant took control of the Union armies, Elizabeth and Mary had already developed this entire spy um, route and spy system. I love that. I love knowing that women were a part of the resistance and that this pair, this white woman and this black woman, paired up together to make good things happen. 
And I think about Kara's life and her story, and I think she is another woman who is living a big story and is wanting to see good things happen. And she writes all about it in her book, The Color of Life. But we had an incredible conversation about some of her um, stories, some of her journey. So listen in and enjoy learning from Kara Meredith. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm curious. Right now, I'm looking out my window, and it's snowing, and it's (laughs) cold in my house. I know you're on the West Coast. What are you looking at outside right now? Uh, You know, it it is cold for Northern California in the sense that it's a balmy probably 47 degrees, which I realize is not the polar vortex of much of the country. But I, I am wearing slippers. I am wrapped in a blanket. Um, because I am a wuss. So when it comes to the cold, so the heater is on. Uh, I mean, it's not 90 degrees in my house, but but the heater is on. Um, we Californians tend to say that it is really cold right now. And um, so we wear our parkas for obvious reasons. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Parkas so. and 47 degrees. I love yes. it. And Ugg boots, obviously, because we need our, what is that? sheep's wool. I'm not, I'm not sure what's inside, but, but our, our tender skin needs warmth. <laughs> awesome. Well, you would be well suited here in our snow in Colorado. Oh my gosh. Um, I would last a day. <laughs> oh, well, Kara, this is a big season for you. Uh, this month, uh, your book has been launched. And I can't wait to hear about it and to have you share just some of the journey in coming to write it and how it feels to have your words out there in the world. Just to give a little bit of maybe some context as mm-hmm. to who you are and and what fills your days. Can you describe that for us just a bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I call myself on a good day, um, a writer and a speaker. Now I also can tack on or add on author to that. Um, but for the most part, that is what I do during the day. Um, as soon as 245 rolls around, then I am a mother and I am known by more relational titles. So our sons are still pretty young. They're six and four years old. Um, so I, I work rather part time, probably a good 25 hours a week. Um, and then I'm a mom and a wife and a friend. Uh, prior to that, prior to writing and speaking, uh, I was a high school Eng- high school English teacher for a handful of years, and then I was um, I was on staff with a, a nonprofit outreach ministry for nearly a decade. Um, so I had I had other careers, so to speak, um, before I started pursuing writing and speaking. What was that transition like for you? I mean, a high school English teacher sounds compatible for sure, but how did you start? writing personally. Absolutely. You know, I've thought about this a ton. I um I don't know if you've have you read Parker Palmer's Let Your Life Speak? Oh my gosh, I love that book. I yeah. feel like it's I mean every human on the planet needs to read it. It's kind of the the quintessential um you know, who am I? What what am I supposed to do like the destiny for our lives um in a very god-ordained sort of way. In that book he writes about how from the time he was a young boy, he loved, he, the, all the little boys, they would play with their balsa wood airplanes. And he said, well, sure, I liked playing with the balsa wood airplanes. And I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing or paraphrasing this right now. He said, I liked building the balsa wood airplanes. I liked playing with the balsa wood airplanes. But the thing that gave me life was writing stories 
about the balsa wood airplanes. Mm -hmm. And he remembers that from the time he was a young boy. And so when I think about writing and speaking and the place where I've landed now, I think about the fact that um, in the sixth grade, I wrote a story for my my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Johnson. And, and it was a, I mean, we're talking, you know, college lined, college ruled paper, pencil, but I remember pouring out my heart in that story. And it was a creative nonfiction piece. But at the very end, I remember the, the very last sentence, working on that sentence and erasing and re-erasing and writing it over and over again, and being so proud of the way that I had written my words, of the way that I had shaped this sentence. And I, I was 12 mm. years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I turned in, I turned in the creative story, the creative writing piece to Mrs. Johnson. And I remember at the end of the year, not getting it back. And after sixth grade graduation, walking back to her classroom a couple days after school let out and saying, hey, Mrs. Johnson, could I have that piece that I wrote? And she said, well, Kara, I'm so sorry, but I, I put it in the recycle bin. Um, I grew up in Oregon. We Oregonians, we, 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 we learned how to recycle. It was deep in our blood and our bones, you know, from, from the, the point of, of being little kids. And, and I said, oh, okay. And I remember walking back home crying. Because I had lost that piece, but I, I say that because from the the t- from the earliest times that I can remember, I have loved writing, and writing has given me life. I was an education major for my undergrad, um, and and I was an education ma- major because I didn't necessarily think that I could um, that I I was cut out to be a writer. I loved writing. Writing was my favorite thing. I, I chose writing over taking tests as much as I could. Um, but, but I remember thinking, no, I'm not a writer. I, I'm not going to be an author. Um, so instead I'll, I'll teach high school English. And, And I don't say that in a negative way in the, if you can't, you teach or those who can't, who teach, they, they teach whatever the phrase is, but I, I truly love students. So I taught for four years. And then when I was in the nonprofit world, I still did a lot of speaking and writing as a director. It was part of my job to communicate. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that whole time, I would always say that, you know, people would say, if you could do one thing for your life, what would that one thing be? And even at that point, which was over a decade ago, I would say, Oh, well I would speak and write full time. I would Mm -hmm. be a writer, but it was something that I, I think I still didn't necessarily think I could actually do, or maybe even if, you know, for, for our audience listening that, um, that God would even, find it in God's will to have me do. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, it's been a part of my story my entire life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it is an honor to have now written and published a book. Right. It's, it's the dream fulfilled. So I don't even think I fully answered your question as far as what the transition was, but the transition was then super crazy hard because it was learning an entirely new um, profession. And so for me, leaving teaching was was a hard transition to go into ministry because all of a sudden uh it was about being it the the job of the heart was also the job of the paycheck and then leaving ministry or leaving the nonprofit world was hard because i didn't know how to speak and write without my identity being tied to a greater organization. And so I really, that was six years ago, I had to figure it out from the ground up. So in that way, um, there's also, there's a a book that I wrote that the general public will never see. It uh, (laughs) lives and will continue to live on the back burner of my computer. But um, I wrote a book and you might even remember this from um, our interactions years ago. 
But I wrote a book about um, being a woman in ministry, about leaving ministry, and therefore kind of having this crisis of faith about entering um, into motherhood. It was kind of, it was really this three-in-one book Mm -hmm. um, that was horrible. (laughs) But... Um, it showed me that I could write a book Hmm. and, um, I tried to sell that book to, to numerous agents. I think I probably tried to sell it to 30 or 35 agents and was rejected by every single agent. Wow. And then three years ago, an article ran that essentially kind of birthed this book that, um, just came out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and after that point and and at, at that point, one of the agents that I had reached out to, to try and sell that previous book to, she said, Kara, put that book away. Nobody wants to read it. No offense. <laughs> she said, but she goes, this, this is the book that people want to read. Hmm. And I signed with her the next day. Oh my goodness. Well, that is, that's fascinating to me because on one level, it sounds like they're both memoirs. They're both stories of your mm-hmm. journey, which means there's a ton of people that could relate to the first book as much as there are those who could relate to the second book because we can all relate to one another's stories. Mm. Why do you think she said no one wants to read that first book? Oh, in one sense, I was still finding my voice as a writer. And so that's the part in which I, I say it was just, it was terrible in the kindest way toward myself with the most grace filled, like sprinkles of grace that I could offer. <laughs> just saying, uh, I was finding my voice and my voice was not there. And so the writing was so flowery sometimes. It was so heady. It was, it was just so, I mean, I, I read it now and I, I want to slap my palm against my forehead. Uh, so there was the actual writing that hadn't been honed in yet, especially when it came to mm-hmm. voice. Um, but I think also, you know, I, I love the space of memoir, of spiritual memoir. I love one of the things I really tried to do with the color of life was make it largely story based, even though there's there's a good amount of research that's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that took a lot of rewriting because I ca- I couldn't use an academic voice even though I felt like it was something the reader really needed to know, mm-hmm. I had to learn how to write in a very conversational tone. And so with that, as far as the content, I'm not entirely um, writing off that it will never be made public. But I think also at that point when I was trying to sell, the spiritual memoir market was flooded and or had gotten to the point of oversaturation with, um, with identity, like faith identity um, memoirs mm-hmm. in the sense of I've been lost and now I'm found. And, um, and it was almost a been there, done that type of thing. And, okay. and that was a big part of my story. So I think that was the other part was, yeah, we, we already had this with Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans and Addie Zierman. And, uh, you know, that's great, Kara, but you're kind of, you know, you're, you're a couple years late. Okay. So. I get that. Mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk about the color of life. And I, I confess I'm only halfway through. I've been trying to read that PDF <laughs> and now need to buy the hard copy now that it's out on bookstore shelves, but I've so enjoyed it, Kara. And I've enjoyed how you've been able to do that story conversational element and weave it into the research, um, Every chapter just feels like I'm just drawn right in to your story, especially since so much of it at at first is your love story and then still learn every single chapter. I just feel like, oh, 
Wow. So I just finished the part about Oregon and mm-hmm. your home state being, well, you'll have to tell us about it. Yeah. So, so let's back up a little bit. Tell, yeah. tell my listeners, just summarize the book for us and where it came from for you in your personal journey. Absolutely. So um, the book is a memoir, a spiritual memoir about my journey as a white woman into or toward issues of love and racial justice. Uh, so like you said, um, it is large, it, it starts, it, it starts with a love story. It is a love story because even though there have been a lot of hints for me, um, as far as owning my own racial identity, as far as moving toward racial healing, as far as fighting for racial justice for every single one of us, it really did start with meeting my husband, with meeting the man who would become my husband. Uh, one of the, one of the, the key phrases that um, I discovered with one of my beta readers, a phenomenal woman and friend and author whom you might know, Micah Boyette, mm-hmm. but um, she was a beta reader for one of the early drafts. And um, that too needed a whole lot of work, which is maybe another question that we can dive into or conversation. But um, at the end of it, she had read through the first draft just about a year ago. And, um, and she said, Kara, the first eight chapters they're okay. <laughs> and she probably said it in an even kinder way. Uh-huh. But she said the place where it picks up, because at that point there were 18 chapters. She said the place where it really grabs you though, is when you meet James. James is my husband. Mm-hmm. And she said, and that's because it was the power of love that helped you see color. So with Micah and a handful of other beta readers, um, I deleted a year ago, I deleted the first eight chapters and just started with meeting James. And at that point, I rewrote nearly half the book. I got an extension from Zondervan, my publisher. <laughs> I said, if you want this to actually be a good book, you're going to have to give me another month. So I got an extension, rewrote the, re- I mean, rewrote half the book. And, but that, that was the point at which we started with meeting James. And mm. so. For me, meeting my husband, who is a black man and I am a white woman, you know, I think for a long time, I was rather in love with who we were on the outside. And I continued to kind of camp out in this belief system that um, issues of race didn't think have anything to do with me because I was white because of the color of my skin. And so from meeting him, from then also meeting his father, who's an historical icon from the civil rights movement, from then having having babies to mixed race boys, thus began a journey for me. I, I'm so glad you did that, by the way, because I who doesn't love a good love story? And yours is so precious. And it draws us in immediately as the as the reader. We anyways, I love that you did that. So you go and you meet your father in law, all the family, the the brothers, and tell us a little bit about that experience and how that really opened your eyes on a new level. Absolutely. So the first time that I met uh, James's family, we we were almost engaged. Um, but we were still dating. I think we, I think we got engaged a week or two later, but from the very beginning, uh, you know, we, that was a question we had. We, we said, our will our families accept the other person? I, he was the first black man that I, I dated other men of color, but he was the first black man, um, that I had, that I had seriously dated. And I was the first white woman that he had seriously dated as well. And so from the very beginning, both of our families, they were very accepting. The difference um, for his family, we went out to Mississippi and I met his family and the the um, nieces and nephews from the very beginning, they called me Aunt Kara. 
Um, you know, and we're like, it's not official yet. You can't do that. But uh-huh. then it was official six months later. So we were okay. But I remember sitting down in the backyard with, with one of James Sr. So my, my father-in-law is a man named James Meredith. He was the first man to integrate into the University of Mississippi in 1962, among other um, famous moments from the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. But um, I was sitting down with Uncle Arthur, one of James Sr.'s brother, brothers, and um, his wife, and then my mother-in-law, Judy and James. And a couple of things happened in that particular conversation. I remember one thing happening. I made a comment about how um, acts of racial injustice and hate don't still happen in the same ways that they happened 50 years ago. And I remember all all four of them just stopping and looking at me and going, hmm, Mm-mm-mm. You know, and that was a moment that I, I mean, and, and that was, that was what, 10 years ago, but I realized how much I didn't know. And I think for all of us, we're on journeys for the rest of our lives, right? Um, and for me as a white woman, I am on a journey because mine is a learned, mine is a learned journey. And there are parts of my experience that are lived being in an interracial marriage, raising mixed race kids. There are a lot of lived experiences. But as far as what it means to experience racism and injustice as a person of color, that is 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 and will always be a learned experience of mine. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them, they were they are all people of color. You know, they they just stopped and they said, "Oh, honey, you know, you got something to learn." Right. But the other thing was that Uncle Arthur, he said, he said, "Kara, we welcome you in. We welcome you into this family." And the only thing the greatest thing that you need to do is you need to understand the impact that your boyfriend, husband now, but that your boyfriend's father had on the world. That's your responsibility. That's your job. Mm. And um, and so that for me, I, I had already begun to research and start to learn a little bit about, but the fact that that was the one directive that I was given um, as far as entrance in or acceptance into the Meredith family, I took that seriously because I had to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. It felt like a, a mandate. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved, he said something, it, we don't care about the color of your skin or it makes no difference that you're a white woman, but we want you to, it's how you're going to engage the impact of your father-in-law. Yeah. It's powerful. So Kara, tell us about some other kind of big awakening moments where that learning, that learned experience was going, you know, deep into the core of, of really recognizing even on a deeper level, how racism is alive and well and systemic and so mm-hmm. entrenched in ways that as white people, we don't, mm-hmm. we just don't get so often. Mm-hmm. In a sense, every single chapter is filled with that. <laughs> uh, you know, so so go buy the book, people. It's yes, available wherever exactly. books are sold. Yes. Um, you know, for me, you mentioned the chapter that you just read about Oregon. Yes. Um, I grew up in Oregon, and and I want to say this off the bat: I love Oregon. I love my home state. Uh, we lived in Seattle. We, as in my husband James and I and our kids, lived in Seattle for twenty months. Um, even though we're now back down in the Bay Area, I love the Pacific Northwest. And when I and so when I wrote about places and the places that I primarily wrote about were um, Oregon, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Jackson, Mississippi. There were a couple other places thrown in there for good measure, but 
those were the primary places that I focused on because those were some of the primary parts of our story mm-hmm. or of my story. You know, but for me, a pretty key moment, which didn't happen really until probably my late 20s or early 30s, was was realizing and learning about Oregon's history and to be honest about Oregon's racist history. Um, that was never something, you know, in the fourth grade, every student, I think across America learns about their state's history. Right. And, um, I had no clue in the fourth grade, um, that my state's history, um, was, had racism woven into its seams and that different parts of the constitution in which these, um, laws and mandates were written into were not fully eradicated until the mid uh, the mid, um, 20th century until Oregon's centennial celebration in seven, in 1976. So there are some huge things, um, that, that I just, I, I had no clue about, absolutely no clue about. And yet you look at that. And when it comes to systemic racism, because I think part of our journey as white people is realizing how this affects us, not how this affects us personally, but owning how, who we are, which is our privilege, how we have contributed um, toward systemic injustice of black and brown lives. But it also, but there's, so there's a personal realization, there's, there's personal racism and, and realizing that there's also realizing the systemic levels um, in, in, in the ways that who we are and how we have benefited has inadvertently contributed toward the injustice. Yeah of our brothers and sisters of color. And, you know, so for me, I think about how, because these different laws were woven into Oregon's history, when something like the great migration occurred um, in the early 20th century and blacks from the South moved to primarily to Chicago, to New York city and to LA there. I mean, you can read about how there was an avoidance of the states and the towns and the cities that did not want them. And so there, um, so there were actually quite a few blacks that moved away from Oregon at that point. So even in the great migration, there wasn't, um, a migration that happened to places like Portland because systemically that had already been written into, um, into, into the state laws, but, but more so it had already become a part of the culture and a part of the culture that said, you are not welcome here. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, there are definitely people of color who live in Oregon, who continue to live there. But, um, but, it, but I think that that systemically has been a part of its story. Um, I think systemically, I think about an experience we had in Seattle. And I wrote a little bit about this later on, but um, about when I was filling out a preschool application for one of my sons and and it said on the preschool application, just pick one as far as it went um, or as far as it goes with a, um, with a race or ethnicity. And we were looking at that and going, well, what, what do I pick for my mixed race son? What do I pick for my son who is black and white? And, and it was a moment of, of almost holy defiance for me of circling both. But our kids then almost went to school in Seattle and the school that our, um, that our, would-be kindergartner was slated for, um, I remember reading, you know, you can dig into any, any, anything within the public school system, but I remember reading a fact of, um, a statistic, excuse me, about, um, about, uh, expulsions that happened at that particular school. 
And when I clicked on the link, I was able to see that of the expulsions, that 96% of the expulsions happened to or by only 7% of the student body. And that 7% was made up entirely of kids of color. Mm. It was made up entirely of either African-American or mixed race students. Mm. 96% of in-school suspensions. Mm. And, and I, I hear that and I see that and I go, what is wrong with that picture? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. almost 100% of the students who are in trouble are in trouble, who are in trouble, that, that that has happened and that they look a particular way. What does that say to us when it comes to systemic injustice? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that's probably the hardest. You named two, right? The kind of yeah. the personal level and then the macro level. I, would you agree that macro, that that systemic racism is harder for people to to kind of wrap their minds around and begin to embrace and think about that seems like it would have the most resistance. I think it's a both and I think I can only speak, um, for, for, or as someone who is white, I think, um, I think there's a whole lot of people that, you know, there's a whole lot of us who would say, well, no, I'm not racist. Like my grandpa, my grandparents were racist, but racism was a thing that happened, um, you know, 50 or a hundred years ago, but I am not a racist person. So I think there's a whole lot of people, um, who resist that. But I think there's also a whole lot of people who resist, um, the macro level, like you said. And, and part of that has to do with privilege. Because of course, if we are benefiting from the system, then, then why or how would we deny or negate the system mm-hmm. that benefits us? Right. That's what's but, scariest. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I think it is a both and, yeah. and, and maybe that's the hardest part is going, no, wait a minute. I've contributed to this both at a personal and at a systemic level. Mm-hmm. And so now that I realize that, what does that mean to lay down my power? What does that mean to lay down my privilege? What does that mean to, um, to stand in the gap and to fight for those or to fight alongside those um, who have not benefited from the things that I have benefited from. Kara, mm-hmm. in all of this, and especially now as a mom, um, I'm sure you feel a whole nother different like level of um, injustice when it comes to your own mm-hmm. children. How have you found your the, the fierce and lovely in your life around all of this in terms of um, there are clear things to fight for? How do you do so in a way that is still creating spaces that are life-giving, that are bringing beauty with your words, with your activism, with your culture shifting, disrupting conversations, if you know what I mean. What's that balance mm-hmm. look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a balance. It's it's always a both and, right? Yes. Um, so it's a balance of um, learning to speak up just as it's a balance of learning to listen. And um, for me as a white woman, I know that I cannot enter this conversation um, on my own accord or just with or alongside people who look like me. And so one of my mantras is this, this year and hopefully forever is to listen and learn and listen some more. Mm. And so part of being, um, fierce and lovely at the same time means, um, shutting our mouths and listening to those, um, 
that we need to be listening to. Um, but part of being fierce and lovely also means speaking up mm-hmm. because there is a grave injustice um, in staying silent. And for me, this book, Birthing into the World, is a way of speaking up. Um, and and as I begin to embrace different conversations around this, um, what we're trying to do with book tour stuff is not to then have the white ladies standing up on a stage or doing a book reading just talking about this. But we're trying with every single event to um, have me enter into conversation with a friend of color. So we're coming to the table. We're modeling these conversations. Um, we are we are um, sometimes wrestling with topics of justice, race, and privilege. And we're not always agreeing. Um, and sometimes it's messy, but we're modeling coming to the table. And to me, that is... That's the epitome of being fierce and lovely simultaneously, that we're, we're willing to enter into relationship with, with everyone around us, but we're entering in with an intentionality that desires and fights and wants justice and ultimately reconciliation. I love that. Is there a list? I'm sure there is somewhere where we can see where you'll be for these book tours and the kinds of conversations with and with whom you're having these conversations? Absolutely. I just designed um, a little a little thing on Canva about an hour ago, which I will be <laughs> posting. Otherwise, um, at this point, all of um, the upcoming dates are on my website, karameredith.com. Um, I believe it's under the speaking tab. Otherwise, um, your listeners can follow me, um, Instagram and Facebook. I'm at karameredithwrites. And uh, then on Twitter, I'm at Caramac54. So all of these um, we're trying to put up there on the internet. Um, but most of the events right now are happening up and down the West Coast. I will be in Jackson, Mississippi uh, the second weekend of February for an event with my father-in-law and Jamar Tisby. I'm really excited about mm, that one. Wow. And your book is The Color of Life, now available wherever books are sold. And I I just think it's going to spark such rich conversations. So Kara, thank you so much. Thanks for writing it. And thanks for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you. Here's what I take away from that conversation with Kara. Fierce and Lovely looks a whole lot like listening, learning, and listening some more. But sometimes it looks like speaking up, especially if we've seen an injustice occur. I hope you'll grab a copy of Kara's new book, The Color of Life, or join her and a friend of color in one of her upcoming events this spring. And talking about speaking up, if you like what you've heard and have enjoyed the guests that I've had on this show, would you be so kind and take 30 seconds, pop on over to iTunes and just leave a quick review. It means so much in terms of helping others more readily find the show. Thanks for joining me today. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Podcast.